Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for the gospel and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus can bring. Today, I'll be preaching with an emphasis on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we prepare for the Easter season, I want to take some time to really communicate the significance of Jesus' sacrifice. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and that it will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons on our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply email your response to pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. Well, it is, it is good to be back, and I am I'm thankful uh, to be back here to share with you guys. And yes, today um, is... We, we are three weeks from Resurrection Sunday, and so the next few sermons are going to be about that. And so we're going to be in Hebrews this morning, at least to start off with. Hebrews 9, it's just kind of a leaping off point. We're going to be in several scriptures throughout our time today, uh, but we're going to start here. So Hebrews 9, and, and we'll come back to Hebrews 9 every once in a while, but this is just a starting off place. And so here in Hebrews Nine, the, the author is trying to make this comparison between Old Testament priests and Christ. And he was talking about the first covenant, and he's going to talk about how the first covenant, the one that Moses initiated, that God initiated through Moses, and how that started. And that's what we have in verse 19. In fact, I should have started in verse 18, what said, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, And he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blood of Jesus. I thank you salvation was your idea. And I am am thankful that, that the wrath of God 
rain down upon Jesus. We are sorry for that. We are heartbroken for that. But we are so thankful that he shed his blood in our place. I pray this morning as we think about the blood of Jesus that we would come to love you more, trust you more, serve you more, and come to know you even better. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Greg Boyle is a priest in East Los Angeles, and he has a ministry that's called Homeboy Industries. It's in East LA. So this this particular ministry, he has gathered, one part of this ministry, he's gathered a bunch of physicians who are trained in the laser technology of tattoo removal. And the reason he does that is that there's, there's gang members who have come out of prison and they have these gang members on them and they, they are looking for a new life. They have been changed from prison and they want to be changed. But a gang tattoo is the symbol of permanence. It's almost a mark of identity that says, if you have this mark on you, the gang has a permanent hold upon you. And some of these guys cannot get jobs because they have gang tattoos on them. Some of them cannot move forward in their job because of their gang tattoos. Some are in danger walking down the street because a rival gang might see that tattoo. And so last I heard, there was like a thousand people waiting in line in the hopes of getting their tattoos removed. It's a free gift that he offers them. And, he, and it offers them somewhat of a new life because the spiritual, the spiritual imagery is very compelling because the, the mark they see on their bodies is a reminder that someone else owns me. And when that's removed, they feel like I am free from that and, and that somebody doesn't have a hold of me anymore. And that picture is a, is a picture of, of us spiritually. There are marks of our former life called sin that is marked upon us. And we think it has a permanent hold on us and it, and it marks my identity. And the blood of Jesus has come and has like a laser tattoo removal erased that mark of sin from us. And that is the message I want us to understand today. We're going to start, like I said, a series of sermons that focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus over the next few weeks. Um, We come every Sunday and we worship a risen Savior. We have Resurrection Sunday every single Sunday. That is what we worship. That's why we worship on Sunday. That's what we, we, we worship a Savior who died but has risen again and is alive today. And in, and in two weeks, two Fridays, we will have, uh, there'll be Good Friday. And Good Friday remembers the day that Jesus was nailed to the cross and died. The, the God of creation 
humbled himself, came down to earth, and then with his, um, the, 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 he, his creation crucified him. And when his, while, while he was on the cross and he was slowly, torturously dying a criminal's death, he breathed one last time and he said the words, it is finished. It's an Aramaic word, tetelestai. And when he said it is finished, he wasn't saying that God's plan had been thwarted. He didn't say that there was no more point in moving forward, it's all failed. When he said it is finished, he was saying that the work of redemption was complete. When the blood had been shed and he died, he said the bill was paid in full. There was nothing left to do. The last barrier between God and man had been removed. Redemption was done. So as he was hanging on the cross and the blood ran down his face with the, with the crown of thorns that had been crammed on his head, and while the blood ran down his back from the beating he endured before the cross, and the blood ran down his arms from the nails that had been nailed into his wrists and the blood ran down his feet from the nails that were hammered into there. While he was bleeding on the cross and then he died, a Roman soldier jammed a spear onto his side and the scripture says, blood and water flowed. And perhaps dripping out the very last drops that Jesus of Jesus' blood that he shed for a dying, hopeless, doomed world. And I hope today we can kind of gather and remember the significance of the blood of Jesus and what it does for us. Some might say that we have a bloody religion. We talk about blood a lot. I've mentioned blood a lot already. It's kind of gross. And you start reading the Old Testament and you read through the New Testament and blood is found everywhere on the pages of Scripture. I I went on an online Bible search, studylight.org, and I typed in blood and it said that there were 350 43 occurrences of the word blood in the New American Standard Bible. And that's not talking about bled or bleeding or bleed. It was just the word blood. And the first occurrence was Genesis 4, 10, when God said that Abel's blood cried out from the ground to him. And the last was in Revelation 19, 13, where Jesus is described as wearing a a robe that has been dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. 
So from Genesis to Revelation, there's this scarlet thread of the blood of Jesus that ties the whole scripture together. It, it is, is important. Paul preached on the blood of Jesus. Peter preached on the blood of Jesus. John preached on the blood of Jesus. Every time we read scripture, we, it, it's, it's somewhere found there. And it tells the truth that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness found. That is the, the story the scripture teaches us. But I'm afraid that there are churches who are drifting away from the truth, the foundational and ancient truth that says the only way to redemption is through the blood of Jesus. It's important for us to understand about the blood of Jesus. So I've got five passages I want to point out to you today to talk about the significance of that in our lives, the blood of Jesus in our lives. This is not exhaustive by any, any means. We could go on and on, but I want to talk about five different passages. And the first passage teaches us that the blood of Jesus justifies and saves us. The blood of Jesus justifies and saves us. Look in Romans 10, sorry, 5, 8 through 10. We might know these verses, some of them, but he says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When Jesus died on the cross, it was not only an awesome display of how much God loves you, but it was how God justifies us. Now, the word justification, the word justified, it's a, it's a $10 church word, right? Um, you, you may or may not know what it means, but here's what it means. It, it simply means to be declared innocent. That's what it means. So picture this. Let's say I'm a bank robber. I'm not, and I'd be an awful bank robber, and that's kind of the point. Let's say I'm a bank robber, and I walk in to the bank, and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go, and I run into the bank, and I forget my mask, first of all, so I walk into the bank, and there's security cameras everywhere, and I walk in, realize I don't have my mask, and I look at all the security cameras, and every one catches a picture of me right face on, and, and there's no doubt who I am. And then in the process, I'm fumbling around for stuff and my wallet falls out. And in my wallet, I got my driver's license. I got my Sam's card. They both have my picture on it. My, I got my address, right? I got my fishing license and, and my pictures of my family. There's no doubt who this wallet belongs to. And then I'm so excited. I'm running out with my money and I, I trip and fall and the security guards all pummel me and, and tackle me. And they hold me till the police get there. And there's two things that are obvious when they get there. One, it is me who is the bank robber. And two, I am an awful bank robber, right? There are two things that are obvious. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then I got to go to the judge. I stand before the judge and I am cringing. My day in court shows up and I know the judge is going to throw the book at me. 
I am waiting for the full force of the law to rain down upon me because there is no doubt that I'm guilty and I know that there's a chance that I'm going to leave this courtroom and I'm going to go spend 20 or 30 years in prison and all the dangers that are involved with that. And the judge comes up and the room gets silent because he's the judge and he says, Roland, I have never seen a more blatant disregard for the law and someone who's so inadequately prepared to do what you wanted to do. And the law allows me to give you the full sentence that I'm supposed to give you and you deserve it because there is no doubt you're guilty. And then he says, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you a sentence that says you're not guilty, but I'm going to say you're innocent. Now, there's a difference between not guilty and innocence. Not guilty says there's not enough evidence to prove you've done it. Well, there was plenty of evidence, but the judge says you're innocent. Now, judges don't do that, but let's say he did. Judges don't declare innocence. Not our judges. And so he says, it's not only that you've done it, and I'm going to declare you innocent, but as someone looks at your record, there will never be a record that you have done this crime. And you can't be charged for it ever again. It's just wiped clean. That is justification. Justification is being declared innocent in the midst of your guilt. We all have that story. And it's what Paul meant when he said that we have been justified by his blood. And we have been saved from the wrath of God. The judge stood before us. We've all, like sheep, have gone astray. We're all guilty. And if we stood before the God of creation without Christ in our life, without the blood of Jesus covering us, if we stood before God in our own works, the wrath of God would rain down upon us and we'd be guilty. But if we've accepted Christ if we have turned from our works and we have trusted in Christ and surrendered our life to him, the judge of all creation looks down at us and sees the blood of Jesus covering us and he sees us just as if I'd never sinned. And that's how you can remember justification. God sees us just if I'd never sinned. That is a powerful word. The blood of Jesus justifies us and saves us from the wrath of God. Our Heavenly Father loves us and he loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross and shed his blood in our place. It was us who deserved to die. We were guilty. And when we've placed our faith in Christ, he sees us just as I'd never sinned. So believer, do you understand what that means? can Can you wrap your head around this a little bit? Because it says this, the sins you did two years ago that you're beating yourself up about, it's been covered and you've been declared innocent. 
The sin from yesterday, the sin from today, the sins we will commit tomorrow has been covered and it has been forgiven. And you've been declared innocent. Not because you're a good guy, but because the blood of Jesus has been covered over you once you have repented and turned to Christ. And there's no double jeopardy, by the way, in God's economy, right? You can't say, okay, I've been forgiven of that sin. To, you know, I committed that sin two years ago and, and, I've, and I've accepted Christ and he has blotted out my sins and he's covered me in the blood of Jesus, but I need to ask forgiveness of that sin one more time because I just feel guilty about it. And I go to God and I say, please forgive me of that sin. And he'd say, I've already forgiven that sin. I took that sin. I put it on the cross, nailed it to Jesus, and and he died in judgment of that sin. It is forgiven. It is covered. You have been declared innocent in the Father's eyes. That is one aspect of the blood of Jesus. It justifies and saves us from the wrath of God. Closely related to that, we see that the blood of Jesus redeems us. Look in 1 Peter 1. The blood of Jesus redeems us. He says this in 1 Peter 1, if you address as father the one who impartially judges, there's that courtroom wordage, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but, you could insert, you were redeemed, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter tells us we've been Redeemed. It's a word that means bought back. It has the idea here almost of a ransom. Someone, let's say, has kidnapped your child. Someone's kidnapped your child and they sent you a ransom note and they say, I want a million dollars for this kid to get him back. And if you don't, harm's going to come to this kid. So you go home and you begin to sell off everything you got, right? I'm going to sell off this. I'm going to gather. I'm going to talk to my friends. I'm going to get all the money I can unashamedly. I'm going to gather as much as I can so that I can pay this ransom so that my child could be rescued from those who would want to harm him. That is redemption. And that's what the Father did for us. We are God's creation. All of us are image bearers of God. We, we are his children in that respect. But all of us have fallen headlong into the trap of Satan and we've been captured. In our natural state, we are imprisoned. Satan has caught us. We are languishing in our cell without any hope of rescue. We are without any hope in this life or the next Without Christ, we are in bondage to Satan and we are languishing in our prison cell. And God says, I'm going to buy you back. You're my creation, but I'm going to purchase you and I'm going to rescue you out of the hands of those who would harm you, rescue you out of the hand of Satan. 
so that you could come home, so you could be my child, so you can be part of my family now. And the price he paid wasn't silver and it wasn't gold. The price he paid for you was the blood of Jesus Christ. That was the, the price that he paid to get us out of slavery. The blood of Jesus redeems us. And Paul tells us that redemption means that we are holy and completely forgiven. If we look in Ephesians 1.7, it says this, Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Talking about Jesus. And then he equates redemption through his blood. He says the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So follow me on this. The first Peter passage we read said that we have been redeemed. It's a word, it's constructed in a way that means it's been done in the past by someone else. It's saying that the father in the past redeemed us and that work is complete. There's no more buying back to do. We sin tomorrow. It doesn't mean he's got to buy us back again. We don't continually go into slavery to Satan. When we are freed, we have been freed. And so that's been done in the past. But here in Ephesians, he says, we have redemption. And that is a word that means it's ongoing, it's constant, it's never ending. We have redemption. And then he says that is the forgiveness of our sins. So that means this. In the past, the Father bought us back out of sin and he gave us the forgiveness that will never, ever stop. At least one amen? Come on. (laughs) All right. That, that forgiveness never stops. We have, have redemption. There is nothing you can do to diminish the forgiveness God has given you, believer. You cannot out the grace of God. Now, that's not a challenge, okay? It says God's grace is more. You might say, you don't know my sin. And I'd say, it doesn't matter. God's grace is more than that. He would never forgive me for that. And I'd say, God's grace is more. The blood of Jesus covers it and redeems you out of it. The blood of Jesus redeems us. The blood of Jesus justifies us declares us innocent, saves us from the wrath of God, and then buys us back and gives us forgiveness of sins. So in the book of Hebrews where we started, the next passage is going to be there in Hebrews 9. And he's comparing, like I told you, Old Testament priests with the work of Jesus and how much better the work of Jesus is. So he's comparing that. And we're, we're in the middle of a thought in the verses that we're going to read, talking about what the Old Testament saints did in order to come before God. And look what it says in Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. Because it's talking, it tells us that the blood of Jesus will also purge our conscience 
The blood of Jesus purges our conscience. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. And not, and not through the blood of goats and calves, talking about Jesus, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal, and there's that word, redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Our conscience Our conscience hounds us. Our conscience falsely sits over us as judge. And every thought, every word, every deed, it accuses us and condemns us and whispers in our ear, you're a terrible person. Or if you're a believer, how, how in the world could Christ forgive you? Our conscience is defiled by sin and accuses us all the time. And when Paul was talking about those who didn't know Christ and how they would stand before God without an excuse because God has placed enough clues around the world and around creation for them to begin to seek after Jesus, he said in Romans 2, 14 and 15, he said this, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. That's another story, just kind of bear with me. And look what he says in 15. In that, they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Our human conscience is defiled by sin and it will either accuse us or it will give us the rationalization for sin that we've been looking for, right? Or is that just me? Our conscience constantly hounds us and it's out of control until we come to know Christ and then the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience of that. It purges our conscience of that guilt. So those accusing words and condemning words we know, that is not the words of Christ. That is Satan whispering through my flesh. And it's not true. The way this works out here in the Hebrews passage is important. The Old Testament follower He's he's making the case that the Old Testament follower had to come to the priest. He could not enter into the temple, and especially not the Holy of Holies. We could go through scripture after scripture where someone inappropriately entered into God's presence and God killed them dead, right? People touching the Ark of the Covenant and God striking them dead. People bringing false fire into the temple and God killing them because they did not treat holy things as holy. And so the people of God had a fear of approaching God. When God came down on Mount Sinai, the people said, we're not even getting close to the mountain because this is scaring us. 
We don't want to be close to the holiness of God because their conscience was guilty. And the Old Testament saint knew that no matter how much goat blood I spilt or sheep blood or rams or cows or doves or whatever it was, animal blood cannot blot out human sin. And so they were fearful to approach God. They couldn't come before God because their conscience said, you're guilty and you cannot come before him. And then Jesus came and he says he brought the blood, his own blood into the holy place. And the culmination of his argument it's found in Hebrews 10, 19, and 20. The author of Hebrews is making this comparison. Yes, the Old Testament saints had this guilt and fear coming before God, but Hebrews 10, 19 through 20, he's summing up his argument, and he says, therefore, that's the summation of the argument, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. That word confidence means freedom of speech. I can walk into God's presence and say whatever I want to. That's the confidence we have in Christ. The Old Testament believer did not have that. The Old Testament saint, the one waiting for the Messiah to come, did not have confidence entering in the holy place. He says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, those two things, confidence to enter the holy place by the blood and a great high priest, both being Jesus, look at the conclusion, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Look what it says. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We do not have to fear come, coming toward the Lord. We can have confidence because the blood of Jesus purges our conscience and cleanses us from an evil conscience. And we know if I've been justified, God declares me innocent. And if I've been bought back, which means I have forgiveness of all my sins, then God sees me not as guilty, but as he sees me, he sees Christ's righteousness in me. Because that's the trade-off. He got our sin, we gained his righteousness. Now, I'm not saying we are righteous. We are sinful. But the Father sees us as not guilty. And so we have the confidence to go before the King of creation and pour out our heart to him without any fear. That's what the blood of Jesus does for us. It justifies us. It saves us. It redeems us. It purges our conscience. We also see that the blood of Jesus purchased the church going from more individual to a broader picture of the body of Christ, the blood of Jesus purchased the church. Look in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives. So this is a part of scripture where, where Paul is 
telling the Ephesian church how to live in the family. He talks about husbands and wives. He talks about children and parents. He talks about slaves and masters and how in the Ephesian household, they're all to live together as believers. And so he's talking to husbands here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me take a side note. Men, this is our charge. A Christian man lives for other people. Christian man looks at his wife and says, what did Christ do for the church? He died for the church. So what should I do for my wife? Yes, I wish I held up to that standard, but that's the goal. We look to Christ what he did. Okay, back on topic. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So understand, make sure you understand the point here. Just like the blood that was on the doorposts of the Egyptian or of the Israelites in, in Egypt was the distinguishing mark of God's people in Exodus. The blood of Jesus is the distinguishing mark of the church. You are not part of the church because you walked in a building today. Just because you're here today doesn't mean you're part of the bride of Christ. But in the heart of every believer, there's an invisible mark. And only God knows that mark. I, I can't see it in you. You can't see the mark in me. Now there's evidence, isn't there, right? Fruit, right? We can see fruit. But, but who truly has that mark is known by God. And that mark is marked with the blood of Jesus. And those marked ones are who comprise the bride of Christ, the church. So when Paul was leaving Ephesus, we're talking about Ephesus here, Paul had spent more time in Ephesus than any of the other churches. He spent all his time, not all his time, a lot of time, like three years, ministering to this church. And so he's getting ready to leave it. He was, he was sad to leave them. He loved this church and he, gave, he brought the elders together to give them instructions on what to do with the church. And we read part of those instructions in, in Acts 20, verse 28. And he says this to them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So don't miss this. This church is not mine. And maybe more to the point, this church is not yours. The church is Jesus's because he purchased you with his blood. You're his precious possession. So the believer that, you know, you you might disagree with and you guys fight and you don't really care about all that much, 
That person has been bought with the blood of Jesus and is his precious possession. The believer maybe that, that you have verbal fights with and you say bad things about and all that, James says, brother, these things should not be. You can't bless and curse from the same, same fountain. That person has been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And we should treat them like that. The blood of Jesus justifies us, saves us. He re- the blood of Jesus redeems us. It purges our conscience. The blood of Jesus purchased the church. And the last thing I want to share with you today is that the blood of Jesus was shed for all. The blood of Jesus was shed for all. Now listen, there are those who don't agree with me on that. But I, I can't read scripture and not see this. Jesus did not die for a few. He did not shed his blood so there was a select person who, that, that could be, be redeemed and justified and purchased into the church. Jesus shed his blood for all. Colossians 1.20, it says this, through, and through him, talking about Jesus, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Jesus' death, the shedding of Jesus' blood, allows the reconciliation of all things, but make sure you understand what I'm saying. Not all will be reconciled. The offer is out there for all. And there's going to be some who say, I don't want that blood washed over me. I don't want my sins forgiven. I don't want to surrender my life, whatever the excuse might be. And there's some who will reject the precious blood of Jesus and will die and reside in hell for eternity. I'm not saying everyone is saved. I'm saying Jesus shed his blood so that everyone could have the opportunity. No one could stand before God at the end and say, but you didn't pay for my sins. And he could say, yes, I did. Jesus shed his blood for all. I want to read another verse. We already read it today, um, but I want to read it with a little bit different emphasis. It's Hebrews 9, 12. We read it already, and it says this. Talking about Jesus coming in to the real temple, the heavenly temple, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And there's that word redemption. The priest would enter over and over again, year after year, day after day, they'd come into the temple and they would offer sacrifices over and over again. Once a year, he'd go into the holy place and the priest, once a year, every year, for centuries, on and on and on, he would offer sacrifices that would pay for his sin and the people's sin in the hopes that they could be forgiven. And the blood of animals would never take away the, the human sin. But Jesus entered the temple, the real temple, the holy temple, the spiritual temple in heaven. He entered there with his own blood, and it says he entered one time, not year after year after year after year, one time for all. He did it for all people. And in doing this, it says he obtained eternal redemption.
And so when Jesus was serving the last supper to his disciples, it was the last food he would eat before he died. It was the Passover meal. He had gathered them together and he picked up the, the cup that would recognize and, and uh, symbolize the blood of the lamb at the, at the Passover. And instead of saying what we said at the beginning in the Hebrews passage, you can go back to read it, he lifted up that cup and said, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of Jesus was poured out on you. It was poured out on you to justify you, to declare you innocent, to save you from the wrath of God, to buy you out of the clutch of Satan, to purchase you into the bride of Christ, to cleanse your conscience so you can go before God and it, without fear. And it doesn't matter your race, nationality, your social status, your political affiliation, where you came from, what you've done in the past, it has been poured out for you. And the blood of Jesus still has that power. Anyone remember the old Andre Crouch song? Um, the blood that Jesus shed for me. Way down on Calvary. Anyone know that song? The blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. Song goes on, it reaches to the highest mountain, it flows to the deepest valley. The blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. Maybe you're not an Andre Couch fan. Some of you don't look like you're... Let me tell you how Spurgeon said it. Spurgeon said it like this. Spurgeon said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Every drop of blood which flowed out of Jesus' body is still in existence. And it is just as it was over 2,000 years ago, wiping away the sins of mankind. The blood has been shed. The incorruptible, eternal, divine, sinless, overcoming precious blood. It availed then, it avails now, and through all eternity, it will never lose its power to bring life. Amen. Amen. So the simple question I have for you today is, have you been to Calvary? Have you fallen at the foot of the cross in submission to God and letting the blood of Jesus cover you? Or are you still depending on your work to accomplish all we talked about today? Because it will never work. But the blood will never lose its power. Believer, maybe today you are hung up on your past sins. And you're not moving forward with your spiritual life because you said, I've sinned in the past, I've trusted in Christ, but I just, I can't forgive myself. Well, that's a good thing. You don't have to forgive yourself because Christ forgave you. 
The blood has been poured out over you. And how dare you say that the blood of Jesus isn't effective enough to cover your sin? I think the Bible would call that arrogance. All your sins were in the future when Christ died and shed his blood. Maybe today you just need to truly acknowledge that forgiveness and move forward in your Christian life. Let's go to the word, go, go to the Lord in, in prayer. Lord, thank you for the blood of Jesus. God, I thank you that we don't have to trust in being good enough. We don't have to worry if, if we're losing points with you each day and whether we're gaining ground or if we've went to church enough or if we said the right prayer or read the word enough. All we have to trust in is the blood of Jesus Christ who has covered us and forgiven us of sin and declared us innocent. God, I pray today if there's someone struggling with salvation, maybe for the first time, they've never truly come to understand what salvation meant. God, I pray today you would prick their heart and you would shine the light of the gospel into their life and they would be marked by you. God, if there's a believer today who needs to truly grasp what it means to have the blood of Jesus smeared on us and covering us and forgiving us and purchasing us into the church and buying us out of slavery. God, I just pray today that that believer would rejoice and enjoy being in your family. Speak to our hearts today. Move among us in a very special way. Help us respond as you call us to, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in Western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 10.45 a.m., but if you come a little earlier, we'll always have some coffee and snacks and good fellowship before we begin our worship service. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.